Whether Jesus is the answer to disarming the violent, largely political divisions in our society. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg, and this might be a good place for someone who had previously not listened to the Walk the Earth podcast to jump in. It's not as if the show is restarting here. But as I mentioned in the last Walk the Earth episode, there has been an evolution of the show over time. And although I never divide any of the podcasts I'm a part of into seasons, this feels like I'm near the beginning of what might be, for some shows, a new season, uh, uh, looking at things from a different perspective. And I want to answer this question in such a way that it creates a little bit of a baseline understanding of what orthodoxy is. In other words, how can I answer a question about whether Jesus is the answer to disarming conflict in our society without doing a little bit of groundwork, a little bit of foundation setting on who is Jesus. But first, maybe a little bit of foundation setting on inappropriate conversations. You can interact with me uh, for both Inappropriate Conversations as a podcast and here Walk the Earth as a podcast at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I interact with people on Twitter for both of these podcasts, IC underscore Greg is how to find me there as well. On Facebook, there's a page specifically for Walk the Earth, WTE Podcast, and there's also one for Inappropriate Conversations, the other podcasts that both share this feed. I'll also make a little bit of a reference here in a minute to SoundCloud, because there is something I'm doing on SoundCloud as well, uh, somewhat to promote both of these podcasts, but more to give the listener who is just encountering 200 past shows in a, in a backlog of previous work going back six years, a fighting chance of understanding what's in any of those previous episodes. So that's sort of a, a level set. And the other thing I want to do right up front is talk about how this is not the first time that Greg as a podcaster has dealt with a particular topic in the way I'm going to today. If I go back to June of 2012, before Walk the Earth existed, there was an inappropriate conversations episode number 91 that I called Putting Up or Shutting Up. And in that, I quoted, I didn't play a clip, but I quoted Dan Carlin, who was, through his show Common Sense, looking at politics, as particularly what the Common Sense podcast is about, was beginning to wonder if his entire approach wasn't just complaining. If he had not gotten to a point where he was able to offer a lot of, of new or actionable solutions... And ironically, I think where he was frustrated in 2012, the year 2016 gave him an answer, maybe an interesting answer and certainly an unwanted answer. So I want to play a clip right up front at the beginning of this. I don't think I've ever done this before on Walk the Earth. I rarely do promos. I will do one for the Dan Carlin Common Sense podcast because that podcast has inspired the question that I want to answer today. And it makes a lot of sense to let Carlin speak his own mind from his own perspective. Although, I think it'll be clear, he is actually asking the question of, how do you move forward with solutions to the problems that we're faced as a society? 
in many cases, problems that are bigger than just political problems, but certainly political divisions in our society. If there are two groups of Americans who seem to actively hate each other. Now, obviously, it's an oversimplification. The second you start talking about two groups, the false dichotomy uh, error is right there for all to see. But if we play along for the sake of argument and say that there is this divide, whether it be conservative and liberal or Democrat and Republican even, that in the political sphere, we are seeing less patience, less kindness, less appreciation for the respect and dignity of other people. And it's taken an ugly turn. Carlin, in his podcast, talks about it in much more detail, and the entire episode is well worth looking up. At dancarlin.com, you'll find it as episode 315 of the Common Sense series, War on a Whim, was the title that he gave it. It's an hour long. I've picked just three or four minutes. I think it gets us started. It's Common Sense with Dan Carlin. I do want to point out, I'm going through my own reevaluation of what my political goal should be based on the reality we find ourselves in now, because my apple cart's been very uh, upended. And understand why. I mean, for those who maybe not listened, you know, I'm a guy who's been pushing a certain idea for about 20 years publicly. And when I started pushing it, it was crazy because that's what everybody told me. You're crazy. And then times just sort of went my direction the way I was suggesting maybe it might. And so as, as recently as a year ago, folks, look at the way things were going. At the election, we had two candidates who were basically independents running under the banners of the two parties, though, because as we pointed out for years, those are the only people likely to win. And the country was focusing on corruption in government. I mean, all these things that people told me quite legitimately 20 years ago, I had no right to ever expect were happening. And now a year later, less than a year later, we find ourselves here and a shiny object, maybe a gold object, has distracted us from everything that was important you know, in that realm that I cared about all those years ago, and managed to discredit it at the same time. How popular does electing an outsider sound now to a lot of people, right? This is going to look like we took our chance. You know, my wife had a great line, which is true, but it doesn't matter. She said, you never said any independent was what we needed. You said an independent. I mean, you know, you can get a bad independent too, but my point was that a Democrat or Republican wasn't going to fix this corruption problem we had. I guess my point is, if you've had your political position destabilized like the foundations of mine have been destabilized by the current situation, what do you do? Well, don't I always tell you, my motto is wisdom requires a flexible mind, so I'm trying to be flexible. But as I analyze what I see as the problem right now, I don't know how to fix it. Just being honest with you folks, I mean, you know, when I think I've got an answer, you hear it, but I'm bereft of ideas right now. Because let me tell you what I think the problem is, and maybe you could tell me what you think the solution is. The basis of my former ideas revolved around the idea that because a corrupt system is in no one's interest, whether you're on the right, the left, no matter where your political position is, unless you are a campaign contributor who personally benefits from the corruption, and even you might think prices have gotten out of hand, 
you don't support a corrupt political system. And my idea was maybe if you could look beyond the political divides on all these questions that we argue about in the political realm and fix the system first, we could continue to have those other arguments later in a cleaner system. This was always a long shot, as we all understood. People working together is not the natural state of affairs. I assumed we stood a chance because it was still in each of their personal interests. It wasn't kumbaya. It was I have to work with my opponent in order to achieve a common goal that benefits both of us. I thought there was a reasonable chance of that. I do not think that anymore because by all appearances, a very large chunk of the American population detests another very large chunk of the American population. This to me appears to be the number one problem on the American triage list. I fear it's fatal long term, and I don't know what to do about it. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. You know, I had said online to somebody who wrote me, and I had said, what is the answer? Because we were talking about the same kind of thing about Americans hating each other. And he said, I'm paraphrasing here, I think he said ethnic enclaves. And then I realized I was dealing with one of these people who who is racial in the way that they look at the world. I didn't realize that initially. but And, and that's another whole segment we could get into too about how I totally misjudged that. And I've said that before, I know. But but ethnic enclaves, in other words, this this person's point wasn't about where I'm going, which is how do I solve something like this? What do you push? What's your, what's your political agenda when you decide that, that fixing our feelings towards each other is what you need to do? And this guy's answer is, oh, you can't do that. We just have to separate and we should do so by color of your skin. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now, when could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin. Common sense. So maybe we should begin by asking whether or not Carlin is begging the question. Because it is at least possible, arguably, that he's not characterized this accurately at all. I have found that's an unfair accusation. I think Carlin in many ways is right on target. My own personal experiences online have taken me to these same sort of dead ends. And I have found myself in in the company of trolls, shall we say. Now, I don't spend a lot of time out on the sidewalk carrying signs and singing and yelling slogans, so I haven't been punched or uh, hit with a stick or anything like that, but you don't have to watch too much of the evening news to know that Carlin's not exaggerating there either. I would take it more in a direction of maybe policy and describe it kind of this way. If you just look at healthcare as an ongoing debate, certainly when we look back from an historical perspective at the year 2017, and talk about political policy in the United States of America, I'm quite sure that healthcare and how to pay for it and how to insure it and cover it, that will be the dominant story in our society for at least the first half of this year. My guess is it will dominate the entire year from a news perspective in calendar year 2017. So how do we apply the questions that Carlin has raised 
to healthcare. And I want to do so in a way that isn't, uh, that maybe is a little bit accusatory. But note that I'm just going to completely ignore, maybe for now, maybe for the whole show, how he ended the clip that I shared. That a lot of what I'm going to do, I'm going to describe as economic based or class based distinctions. But there also is very clearly uh, a racism and a sexism and other sorts of biases and prejudices and bigotry going on here. I will just leave out the segregationists for now because anyone who's listened to any of the Inappropriate Conversations shows, and I'm sure it, it is an undercurrent for Walk the Earth as well, would know me as a anti-segregationist. I see that as a huge mistake. But I'm going to set it aside and just want to talk about whether or not Carlin's correct in assuming that there are people in our society, a lot of them, millions, tens of millions, who hate each other so much that they would rather see a whole group of people completely disenfranchised, perhaps dead, exiled if possible. If you could put this whole group of people who think this way in a rocket ship and send them to the moon, there's a lot of people who, if that were possible, would be lighting the ignition switch right now. And I want to do this in a way that avoids one of the other logical fallacies that we see going on so often in our society. And that's the, the I know you are, but what am I kind of childishness, the will they do it too attitude. There are people that I interact with on a regular basis. You can't have a conversation about any of this stuff without having to get past the, well, they did it first, or they did it as well, or they did it worse. And it's as if establishing that someone else is a hypocrite gives you carte blanche to be a hypocrite yourself. I think we ought to be striving to not be kind of hypocrites. But to diffuse that, let me begin by saying that I see this on both sides and that I'm willing to grant for the sake of argument that it's easier for us to discuss the problem I want to talk about today if we put a little amnesty out there and say, well, no one group is worse. I say that up front. I imagine by the time I get to the end of the question today, I will have allowed my real opinion to creep back in. But for the sake of argument... Let's just start off with saying, yes, I do know a lot of people who, if there were a hypothetical rocket ship, they could put 10 million Americans in to get rid of their kind of people, that um, both liberals and conservatives would pick the opposite camp to set off into space. And again, I'm leaving out attitudes that some people have about other people based on race or sexuality or religion. Now, for now, let's just look at healthcare from a perspective of how has this become so divisive? And what you end up with when I have conversations with uh, politically conservative Christian friends, where you get to this impasse very quickly, disappointingly quickly, is that one group just believes that there's just no reason why they should be asked to pay for somebody else's well-being. And it's morphed. It's become more toxic. It's not just that that we're rugged American individualists and we shouldn't have anybody, including the government, trying to step in and take care of us. And take care of us includes even the bare minimum of social safety net out there. To now to the point where when you look at the debates going on in the House of Representatives and in the U.S. Senate over their different versions of health care bills, all looking to replace the Affordable Care Act, uh, really more interested in dismantling the affordable piece of it than anything else, that there are some Republicans who are refusing to support Republican legislation proposed on either side of the Houses of Congress because it doesn't do enough to take enough health care out of the hands of enough people, and often based on whether they can afford it. 
And if you if you look at political cliches, you can essentially say, well, there's one group of people who are more likely to be wealthy. And if you were to pick one of the two political parties, Democrat versus Republican, you would probably guess that, well, the wealthier people are more likely to be Republican, the lower uh, class scale on the economic scale, more likely to be Democrat. That's obviously not necessarily true. There's tons of exceptions, but just like the amnesty I granted right up front to create a place where we can have a conversation, let's not find the five to six percent exceptions or even the 12 to 18 percent exceptions and use that as a reason to discount what is probably generally perceived to be true. And notice that I've you've perceived as a, as a term here that it doesn't necessarily mean that it's absolutely true, but the thought process is that people who you know, are making $100,000 a year or more can't seem to allow themselves to remember, if they ever did experience, what it's like to make less than twenty. what it's like to be maybe getting yourself up to the $30,000 a year mark because you're working two or three different minimum wage type jobs, and that that inability to have empathy toward each other is one of the biggest problems. It's hard to have a conversation about it with someone who has a different point of view because it's hard to breach that divide when we cannot speak with empathy toward each other. That you end up very quickly getting too lazy. I've even heard words like parasite spoken from people who are uh, fairly well-to-do, middle class, upper middle class, and beyond, about people who are literally living paycheck to paycheck, literally at their wit's end. And it seems from the outside looking in that a lot of the legislation being proposed is designed to make those people lose their insurance. Maybe even designed to trick them into voluntarily giving it up. Because if you make $25,000 a year, you certainly can't afford premiums of $5,000 and deductibles of another $5,000. I mean, no one's going to spend 40% of their income on the protection against the possibility that a catastrophic health circumstance may come. And yet, it's generally true that all of us are going to have a catastrophic health circumstance at some point in our life. We, we tend to describe the ultimate catastrophic health circumstance as death. And to, uh, to a Christian's perspective, the death rate's 100%. We're all going to get there. There's only one example in recorded human history of somebody bucking that trend. So my question is, if you've got people who are crafting legislation that they hope it uninsures as many people as possible. That the uh, indifference to whether people die as a result of a change in government policy is so high that that indifference could be described as reckless disregard. And reckless disregard tends to be the standard we might use for someone who somewhat inadvertently but carelessly and thoughtlessly causes the death of another person. That you can... Uh, you can get charged with murder without actually premeditating the whole thing out. If you have enough reckless disregard for the well-being of your fellow man and your behavior causes that you know, tragic circumstance to occur, you might be answering questions about, you know, you didn't get in your car, drive 100 miles an hour through the neighborhood because you intended to run over a kid. But if you get in your car, drive 100 miles an hour through the neighborhood and you do hit a kid, you're going to have to answer some questions about your reckless indifference to human life. And right now, one side of the political spectrum could certainly look over to the other and ask whether or not the conservative worldview has a reckless indifference to human life. What I hear back within the church is, well, we just don't believe the government should play any role here. That back in the day, you know, when the family farm was the agricultural center 
of society, uh, pre-Civil War, for example, that people just took care of each other. And granted, that may have actually been true. It may be more than just a Paul Bunyan-style piece of American mythology. Fair enough. But I don't believe that those people had access to the kind of medical care that we do. It's essentially saying we're comfortable with the lifespan dipping back underneath 60, getting into the low 50s, maybe even the high 40s, that some people are just going to die because even though we have a quality of health care, preventative medicine included, that could easily address issues that killed people 150 years ago, we're just not going to do that anymore. Or we're going to dole it out through an economic system that decides that how much money you have or how rich your family is determines entirely whether or not you've got access to an MRI, for example. A very expensive procedure. But once we start doling that procedure out based on you can only get it if you can afford it, you are essentially handing a death warrant to a lot of people and doing so based on their economic status. So the other thought is, well, maybe... The family can't manage that anymore, but this is still not the job of the government. I've had pastors tell me and tell me passionately that it's the job of the church. And I believe that if you hook these folks up to lie detector tests, they're not lying. They're telling the truth, but you can tell the truth and still be monumentally misinformed. Because the question I asked them back is a very simple question. I don't see the church in any position to pay for it. The church that I was attending at the time, the church we walked away from in this Walk the Earth podcast years ago, was being pastored by somebody who had that mindset, who really felt like that this should be handled by the church. And his answer was, if everyone just tithed, if everyone gave 10% of their income, then you'd have more than enough to take care of people. And all those disenfranchised people who have no money and 10% of their income is, is uh, well, either unavailable, living from paycheck to paycheck, barely putting food on the table, or they're not part of the church anymore. Maybe they're not part of the church anymore because they've lost faith in the Christian church. Because I know as many pastors who are actively interested in taking health care away from Americans as I know pastors who are actively interested in making sure that everyone is taken care of fully and in a complete, balanced, fair, equal sort of way. So how do you manage that? And then there's this Pollyanna notion that, well, if the church just had this treasure trove of cash— then it could take care of the health care needs of people on its own. And because the church had that resource, it would draw people in and people would begin attending church who stopped attending church because it's a life or death situation for them. And if you want to have health care, if you want to have treatment, if you have a sudden kidney failure, then then worshiping Jesus is the only way. Negatively, you could say it was almost a bait and switch mentality that was going on in the minds of this particular member of the clergy. I don't want to be that negative. I want to be as positive as I possibly can. But even that you know, effort to be intentionally positive, you're still basically saying that this individual was going to, going to put himself in charge or his denomination in charge or a conglomeration of denominations in charge of deciding whether that unbeliever was actually going to get life-saving medical treatment or not. It was going to put what I would consider to be an inappropriate level of power in the hands of the church. Plus, who are we kidding? The church that I was attending at the time could barely pay its bills. Between the expenses of staff and utilities, there wasn't really anything left to fund anything more ambitious than an annual vacation Bible school program. There was certainly nothing there to seed any sort of uh, foundation or other funds that could cover what the federal government would no longer be doing 
in the realm of providing Medicaid, Medicare, other sorts of, of emergency medical insurance for people who are unable to afford the procedures that modern medicine might provide to them. So this, by way of setting up, is to say somewhat cynically that there is certainly a group of Americans right now, and maybe it's just five U.S. senators, but it's bigger than that, I believe, who are actively indifferent, if not actually actively interested in lots of Americans losing health care, losing access to health care, and dying as a result. Not terribly different from putting them on a rocket launching to the moon and letting them fare for themselves in an oxygen-free atmosphere. So that is not a terribly far-off exaggeration. And then another group of people who feel so strongly about this that we actually see some demonstrations, not all, but some demonstrations turn violent. I just want to use that as an example because I feel like healthcare is a really good one in the sense of saying that this pastor friend of mine was not wrong in suggesting that the church probably should play a role if there was a catastrophic situation where all insurance simply disappeared tomorrow, that the industry itself collapsed. There is no indication that we should worry about this. But if it were to happen, somebody would need to step up and step up quickly, and there's good reasons to suggest that maybe that somebody would be the church. But it would be one heck of a journey. I think the church would have to scale back its missions in lots of ways to even begin to put a dent in what might happen in that course of action. Again, none of this deals with any of the segregation questions. A lot of Americans are engaging in open and hostile hatred toward each other based on nothing more than um, who they love or the color of their skin. And I'm setting all that aside for now because what I want to do is lay, lay a bit of a foundation and try to answer the question of, especially with me having you know, difficult differences of opinion with members of the clergy online and face-to-face over the last few years, is whether or not there is a solution to this problem that Carlin seems almost resigned to saying, maybe there's no way out of this. Maybe there's just no hope here. I would offer a hope from a Walk the Earth perspective that maybe if Christians just actually started following Jesus, if Jesus became less of a litmus test toward entrance into the political sphere and a uh, slogan I'm going to put on my bumper sticker next to who I'm voting for this year. If Jesus was less that and more someone that we were really willing to follow, follow at any cost, especially as people who already identify as believers, if Christians would actually set down their political affiliation, pick up their cross and follow Jesus, would things be different? And at the very least, it's hard to imagine someone making an argument that Jesus is not the way here, or that Jesus would be incapable of making a difference. And the people who might go there, who might suggest that, are the kinds of people who would probably say that, well, to them, Jesus, uh, they're doing Jesus's way already, waving the right banner. They're marching in the right direction. They've oriented themselves to the right side of political beliefs, and they've convinced themselves that that is actually what Jesus thinks that Jesus, for example, might feel very strongly that the government should play no role whatsoever in providing for a base level of medical resources to the citizens living in that country. This is, at the very least, an assumption about what Jesus said or thought or taught that has no bearing whatsoever on Scripture because you can't find a concurring opinion in the New Testament that reflects that point of view. And at the worst, it's a direct betrayal of Christ. So 
Carlin's not wrong in the size of the problem here. It's a serious issue. And so serious because we have a lot of people claiming to be Christians who seem to be completely indifferent to whatever Jesus actually said and taught and directed and even warned us with with sort of dire language about separating sheep from goats. And you don't want to be the goats, you do want to be the sheep. But if you do some of the things that I would probably say fall under the realm of, of political uh, conservatives, and certainly the alt-right is aligning themselves with the goats and presuming that Jesus wouldn't care. So you, you can deal with the fact that this is so big that you've got Christians who don't care what Jesus thinks, and maybe that is truly an insurmountable problem. And maybe I'm actually making Carlin's sense of resigned depression even worse. On the other hand, I think that I'm not really fumbling around for solutions here. I think we really do probably need to turn to both sides of the political spectrum, the liberal side, for example, and say that perhaps your growing, seemingly growing animosity toward anything sectarian, including Jesus himself, is kind of naive and really missing the point. That what I always do when I try to engage people in conversation, whether that conversation be uh, formal enough that it looks and feels like a debate, or whether it just be conversation, is try to grant the person I'm talking with everything I possibly can, and then holding them accountable to bear the burden of their own suppositions. And I think this is a place where people who are on the liberal side of the political spectrum should be granting to Christians, politically conservative Christians in this case, that yes, you're probably right, that Jesus is not just the way and a wise teacher, but God incarnate, and whatever he said we probably ought to do. And see where that takes the conversation. Do what I did at the beginning of this Walk the Earth question, and sort of grant some hypothetical amnesty, just for the sake of argument. Don't go straight to, I'm right, you're wrong. Let's try to find that, that middle ground, a place where genuine interaction can occur, where compromises, perhaps, can be forged. And of course, on the other side, I think that the obligation there is to say, if you really want us to be a quote-unquote Christian nation, well, then live up to it. And it means we have to answer a set of questions right up front. And the reason why I thought this might be a great entry point for a lot of people on Walk the Earth to say, well, well, first, who is this Greg guy? And uh, do I need to listen to 40 previous episodes to understand his journey? And the simple shorthand answer is, I'm very orthodox. I have historically called myself conservative in my beliefs, you know, from my religious perspective, but that doesn't work anymore. Because if a ton of people who are on the, the far right side of the political spectrum, who passionately identify themselves as Christian and conservative, have turned the meaning of the word conservative to such a degree that they are actively rejecting things Jesus said or indifferent to them in one way or another, then my fidelity to who Jesus is, what he taught, what he said, how we should do it, maybe it no longer makes me conservative. Maybe conservative is not the right word anymore. But let me just kind of jump into the answer to the question that I'm begging here. Right up front, is there a way that we can look to see, well, what are Jesus's key teachings? Can we all rally around some notion of who Jesus was? And to do this, I've just randomly gone to a website. I'm sure there's lots of uh, others out there. I'm sure that they vary to one degree or another, which is kind of concerning. But there's probably a through line here, which is pretty easy to kind of grab a consensus from. The one I found is a Mennonite site coming from the Anabaptist tradition called uh, thirdway.com. 
Uh, it's thirdway.com, love-jesus-key-teachings. And in there, this Mennonite run website has created a list of 20. That seems like a pretty good place to go. I'll skim past some of them that I don't think are directly relevant to the question of, of what did Jesus say about these issues that we seem to be willing to battle each other in the streets over, whether those be the virtual streets of social media or the actual streets in cities like Berkeley, California. So let me go through the list. And uh, I'll certainly let you know if there's any of these that I've got my doubts about, but I think we're going to find is that cruising through this list, some of which I'm reading for the very first time as I go, because I did just randomly grab a website today. I think we're going to find I'm in agreement with most of them. And what I think we'll find when I'm done is that there's a genuine question about whether the quote-unquote sides in this argument can make the claim that I'm making about, well, fidelity to the answer to the question of who was Jesus, because I believe that if we answer the question of who was Jesus, what did he teach, what were his key teachings, that we then can turn around and answer the question I've raised today about whether Jesus is actually the answer to disarming the violent, largely, largely political divisions in our society. If our conservative politicians were actually living up to the mantle they claim of being Christian by doing things Christ's way, would it make a difference? And if the liberal side of the political spectrum, which claims that it doesn't have a dog in this hunt and that it's just not interested in a religious litmus test. Well, if it would actually be as multicultural as it claims to be, that it would have plenty of room to agree with the things that I'm probably going to ask the other side to agree with. The fact of the matter is a lot of these teachings are not truly and uniquely belonging to Christ. Jesus has a lot of concurring opinions coming from all corners of the world, not just religious corners of the world either. But let's get into this list of 20 and see if we can establish what may be an orthodox answer to the question of, well, who is Jesus? Because I really can't expect two warring sides of a political spectrum to agree to follow him if we haven't established, well, what does that even mean? So number one, the Christian life is marked by baptism unquestionably true. Not sure it's directly relevant to the question we're trying to answer today, though. Jesus is available to help us not give in to temptation. True. Jesus asks us to repent, which means turning away from wrong and confessing wrongdoing. Fine. Jesus says, follow me, and you will help find others to follow me too. So that gets into an interesting place. We'll talk a little bit about this idea of follow me and helping others to follow me from Jesus in the next Walk the Earth question. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. When I get done with this list, uh, not only do I agree with this, I'm going to cite a few previous episodes, more uh, likely to be inappropriate conversation shows, where I've spoken in the past about what Jesus teaches and what it means. I'll lay down some references from people who would rather hear more from me on this topic, and take up your cross and follow me is certainly one of them. Uh, repeatedly, Jesus notes, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus seems to be telling us that the ways to experience heaven on earth now, and he also refers to a future realm where we will be in the presence of God and Jesus. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's now, and the new heaven and new earth is in the future. And whether we call that heaven or something else, they're two slightly different concepts. But it isn't like there is no heaven now. That's pretty clear. Number seven, Jesus showed compassion for all and helped them. The poor, the despised, the outcasts, and wants us to do the same. Let's put a little pin on number seven. We'll come back to that a little later in the show. Number eight, 
Jesus says he is like new wineskins, or a completely new thing. Number nine, the many stories and healings of Jesus teach us, have faith, it is enough. This, to me, is a potentially risky area. I believe that my faith leads me to seek medical attention if something's going on in my body that is painful or concerning and that I can't explain it. So there are maybe more than one ways to have faith in the context of healing. There are some who believe that in the context of healing, you should have faith, it is enough, and therefore don't go to the doctor. I'm not sure I would agree with that if that's the direction that number nine on this list might go. Number 10, Jesus emphasizes, be sincere, not a hypocrite. They cite Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, the centerpiece of the Sermon on the Mount. I would also cite Matthew 23. Jesus feels not just strongly about this, but very strongly about this. Number 11, Jesus and God are one. This might be an area of divergence between Christianity and other theistic religions. I agree with their citation, though. Jesus refers to this multiple times. Number 12, Jesus warns, Don't let family get in the way of following me. He actually goes beyond just family. I think what he would be saying to us here in this context is, maybe you shouldn't let your politics get in the way of following me either. Whether that be a literal flesh and blood family, or perhaps a political family of sorts. Number 13. Jesus has authority over the law and tradition. Well, this one's important, too. I don't know if I'm going to put a pin on it the same way I did number seven about Jesus showing compassion. But a lot of the people that I deal with who really struggle to find appropriate compromises where we're just different people from each other. And I can't understand someone else's world or their walk and they can't understand mine because we just we don't have the same experiences. Jesus here says basically that he has authority over the law and tradition. And that if he chooses to break down barriers, in his case, between Jew and Gentile, he's got that authority. It's ironic to me that Jesus broke down what was such a rigid barrier between Jew and Gentile. And we in our society can't seem to break down relatively, comparatively simple barriers. uh, Gay and straight, for example. Black and white, for another. Number 14. Jesus fulfills Old Testament scriptures. That goes right there with number 13. To me, this is a test of orthodoxy. And I've talked about it before, both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations. Inappropriate Conversations 150, opening the scriptures, spent a lot of time on that idea. Number 15. Jesus preaches, love your enemies, do not hate, be reconciled. All right. So if one of the questions that was being begged was, am I suggesting Jesus is the way when Jesus might not be on board with being called the way in this context? No. Jesus preaches, love your enemies, do not hate, be reconciled. If we can't agree with Jesus on this, then Dan Carlin is right, and there is no hope. Jesus reminds us, number 16, you must become like a child to enter the kingdom. In other words, no one is going to be able to present their their credentials, make an argument, uh, persuade their way in. Uh, your list of accomplishments is going to be relatively meaningless, that this notion of entering the kingdom is wide-eyed and full of wonder. That's kind of how, how I read the scripture. They cite Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Number 17, Jesus' com- disciples became a community of faith, which forms the beginning of the Christian church universal. 
spoken in those general terms. I agree with it. You take that a few steps further and start drawing denominational lines. I disagree with it. They certainly did form a community of faith. Their community of faith did not become a church in the sense that the church is a building or even a cathedral. It's neither of those things. And Walk the Earth, especially the first maybe two or three episodes, the beginning, the genesis of Walk the Earth, answered those specific questions. What does it mean for me to go from one church to another? Well, I'm not really talking about a building. I'm talking about changing a community of faith. In my case, a group that had lost their way. A group that had, in some ways, sort of thought that maybe they had some answers which forced Jesus to lead them in a particular direction. You can still presume that Jesus is the leader, he's the shepherd, you're the sheep. But when the shepherd and sheep kind of lose track of who's in charge, it's a problem. If I was engaged with a community of faith that had that problem, I might have decided, now I'm going to seek a new church. Again, not in the sense of a building, but in the sense of a group of believers. Number 18. The events of Jesus' last week on earth are the culmination of his ministry and teachings, climaxing with his death on the cross. A man who has never sinned dies to save all the rest of us who have sinned. I'm comfortable with that. This is a place where if Walk the Earth was focusing not on a broad audience, including people who are not part of the church, there's a lot to discuss there in what is number 18 on this website. But I think at a general level, it's pretty easy for me to agree with that. Number 19, Jesus says, I am alive, go and tell everyone else. That is actually a pretty good way of looking at the sometimes confusing idea of resurrection. I am alive, go and tell everyone else. And then he adds, their point number 20, I will be with you forever. I am orthodox enough to have no problem accepting the biblical accounts of crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. The later, the the formation of the church, the concept of epiphany, the idea of the Holy Spirit. All of these things I'm very comfortable with. So there are probably a few more ideas beyond this that I would say are foundational New Testament ideas. But if you say, hey, I'm just going to focus on Jesus. What did Jesus teach? What did Jesus believe? This isn't a bad list. It's a list that I would certainly have very little trouble getting behind. Unless and until somebody took it in the direction of violent, aggressive, forced indoctrination. Or a uh, concept of faith healing that denied somebody a vulnerable person medical treatment. There are things that could be bent to evil intent here. But words on the screen, yeah, it's a pretty good list. And so if anyone were to say, well, hey, this Walk the Earth podcast, Greg seems to be a Protestant Christian. That's true. How orthodox are his beliefs? Every bit as orthodox as this list from the Anabaptists that I've just shared from thirdway.com. And in light of that, if that is who Jesus is, let me just zero in on one and bring us back to the concept of healthcare and what we're supposed to do. Jesus showed compassion for all and helped them, the poor, the despised, the outcasts, and wants us to do the same. This is directly at odds with what I might describe as Christian social Darwinism. When I'm talking with people on the political right, who are kind of resigned to the fact, or maybe comfortable with the fact, or in the case of at least a couple politicians I can name, desperately eager to implement the fact that there are just some people who don't deserve to live. The bottom line is, they made bad decisions in their life, there's consequences they should be suffering, they don't make enough money, they shouldn't have any entitlement 
to medical procedures and healthcare they can't afford, that uh, well-to-do people can afford preventative medicine and therefore it's appropriate that they live longer. It's a survival of the fittest concept and it's Darwinist in every conceivable way. It's what we tend to describe as social Darwinism. And the irony is that when I'm dealing with people who I would consider to be politically active Christians, very typically Republican, religious right, right wing, uh, alt-right in some cases, those are the same sorts of people who claim to reject Darwin and all of Darwin's ideas, but they live them out with their beliefs on how policy ought to be implemented. In other words, if there's some form of, a, of an American Christianity being peddled here, their views are far more America, and uh, frankly a falsely mythological view of America, than they are Christian. Jesus would not tell us to ignore the needs of people who have fallen on hard times because it's necessary for them to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. Partly because Jesus, I believe, spoke with a wisdom that recognized that it doesn't make sense to ask someone to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps if they don't have enough resources to have boots. If you got no boots, you got no straps. So would Jesus be in favor of a social safety net? There's absolutely nothing on this list which would make me believe that Jesus would have any sort of strong opinion about whether or not the help that we're providing our neighbor comes through the church or outside the church. Remember the conversation about this form the formation of the community of faith is what we call the church today. Well, it was a very different thing in the aftermath of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. And it was certainly uh, non-existent from a Christian perspective before those crucial events in biblical history. So I don't believe that anybody who expresses you know, grave doubts about whether Jesus will be okay with the government being involved have any scriptural basis to back that up. They're not making sense from a Christian perspective. I've got one fairly large advantage here when it comes to the question of health care because Jesus throughout his ministry, but in really crucial places like Matthew chapter 25, the end of that chapter is a section typically called the Great Judgment, where Jesus talks about um, his followers will take care of people who are sick and in prison, or they will not be his followers. As you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. As you did it not for the least of these, you did it not for me. I don't believe Jesus gives us any loophole to say, well, hey, Jesus, I'm sorry, there's a lot of people who died because they couldn't afford medical coverage or who starved to death on the street, but I was just, I was doing my part to make sure the government didn't take care of it. And when I ask again, the people who I know who are part of the church, but have those really harsh religious views, the question is, well, how much of your money have you diverted? How much of an example have you set? How, how much have you started down this path? And I'm not interested in asking whether they tithe to a church or not. To me, that's irrelevant. Whatever you give to the church, you need to be giving that much more to some sort of independent fund that's going to cover all these things that the social safety net delivers today. You take food stamps away because you don't think the government should be providing food stamps. I want some evidence that you're taking care of it in another way. If you think the church should be doing it, then the church should be doing it. I had a conversation with a boss. This is several bosses ago. When I was in a different job, I had a conversation with, a, with my boss, who's more politically conservative than I am. And he kind of, in the course of that you know, careful conversation is how I would describe it, he acknowledged to me that if his tax bill suddenly went down 15% because 
all of these domestic programs disappeared. And this strict constructionist idea of the government literally stripped the U.S. government down to nothing more than the salaries of legislatures, judges, and the military. And that's it. We are paying for anything else. That if he got that 15% back, would he turn around and spend that same 15% on establishing a fund to cover the needs of people who are desperate for that social safety net? Even if you successfully weeded out the ones who you could prove by some standard were, quote-unquote, just lazy, feeding off the government when they had other resources available, whether it be in their family or in their community or however it might be available. And he kind of acknowledged that no, he wouldn't. I said, well, that, that's concerning because this 15% tax break you're looking for is in and of itself not enough. You might have an idea that that 15% tax break that you feel guilty because you're not splitting that 50-50 with your own kind of family's wealth and protection and establishing some sort of fund to address the needs of others who are desperate. But the fact of the matter is it would take all of what you got back and more than that to actually do what needs to be done if you want to call yourself a Christ follower. That was a difficult conversation, and it hasn't gone anywhere since then. I still see this person from time to time. It's just not a place that he was comfortable going. But if Dan Carlin's right, if we actually have two sets of Americans who hate each other so much that they might not shed a tear at the death of anyone on that other side, they might actually engineer public policy decisions that would greatly increase the likelihood of that death on the other side. If we could, if they given the power, would they divide our society up? Would they rip us in two and exile certain groups? If he's right about that, I see the only hope is being asking Christians on both sides of the political spectrum to look honestly in the mirror and say, who is this Jesus I claim I'm following and what would he have me do? I don't know that I've done this too explicitly on Walk the Earth, but I know on inappropriate conversations in past years, I've talked a lot about the most powerful prayer I've ever uttered and getting an answer to prayer and an answer to prayer in such a way that it kind of stopped me in my tracks and and made me do some of the things that Jesus discusses in this list that thirdway.com shared, that what would you have me do is a heck of a prayer, especially if you get an answer. I think the number one reason that a lot of Christians don't ask the Lord that question is that they don't think they're ready to live up to the answer. This concept of repenting and turning around, this idea of following, this notion of picking up your cross and following me. Well, the stakes get raised when that answer to the question is very direct and specific. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I would come back and drop references to other podcasts I've done that had some relevance to this notion of picking up your cross and following. And I'd mentioned SoundCloud as I did it. And I think what I want to do is just kind of rattle off a list of inappropriate conversations numbers. Because if you go to SoundCloud.com and go to IC underscore Greg and and the page there, past things that I've shared, generally speaking, are clips of podcasts where I've gone into the oldest episodes and kind of moved through chronologically starting with inappropriate conversations, but I've done enough of them now that I'm to the point where I've hit Walk the Earth as well, and sharing clips of those shows to where somebody who wants an audio hint of what those older podcasts are about can hear, in some cases, a very short segment, and in other cases, a fairly significantly long segment of what those show topics were. And there's a number of them that 
although they were recorded under the series of inappropriate conversations, I feel like they had relevance or have relevance from a Walk the Earth perspective. They're at least the part of the inappropriate conversations mix that deals with religion. Because the the About page for Inappropriate Conversations at www.inappropriateconversations.org is the notion that we're not being served well by some sort of strict separation between politics and religion uh, and other aspects of our culture. Um, sex, drugs, rock and roll, for example. And I think this is where I would turn to the left side of the political spectrum and question whether those folks are actually accomplishing what they think they're accomplishing and getting done what they want to get done. I feel like they fall significantly short because trying to keep politics and religion separate from each other because the religious right does it so poorly, refusing to listen to Jesus' answers to the questions that divide us, kind of a mistake. Because to me, if you want to be liberal in the traditional sense of that word, you should be very opening, open to hearing Jesus' answers, frankly, along with Muhammad answers and Buddha answers and any answers coming from the Torah or the Talmud. You should have a broad range of ideas, including answers from people who are actively hostile to any and all of those religions, that the liberal mindset should be open to all ideas, not selectively weeding out who's allowed in and who's not. That's the same mistake from the other side of the spectrum. So I think that I would ask people who are not Christian— to give this Jesus guy a chance just for the sake of argument. I'm not necessarily inviting a conversation about Jesus because I think I'm going to convert people and get them to come to my church on Sunday, but more because I think that it creates the best opportunity for a common ground conversation. It's hard for someone who's speaking in their mind on behalf of Jesus and having a conversation with with others about Jesus to suddenly behave in really incredibly unchristlike ways like Spitting at people, hitting them with a brick, calling them four-letter words, trolling, in other words. That we do need to assess and address the problem of Christian trolls that I spoke about last time on Walk the Earth number 44, asking the question about whether people who were menacing Christian authors were Christians if they actually bothered to name an affiliation. I think the answer to that question was, yes, they, they think they're Christians. They may or may not be right. The, whether they're right is irrelevant. They're identifying themselves as Christians, and that is inherently problematic. Now, what I want to do is rattle off a list of inappropriate conversations, show numbers, and a general idea of what the topics are, just to say that in addition to me lining up pretty well with what a group of Anabaptists feels are core teachings of Jesus, Walk the Earth isn't the only place I've talked about these things. And the divide between Walk the Earth and inappropriate conversations topically is not as strict as you might think. Here I am on Walk the Earth, answering a question about politics, introducing thoughts from somebody who does a political podcast. Inappropriate conversations have been muddying these waters for years. The first one that I would cite, I'll actually do one out of sequence. Chapter and verse was Inappropriate Conversations 20, and it shares what I would consider to be a prose poem with things I don't believe uh, under the heading of chapter and verse. But if you go back to the very beginning, I didn't get three or four episodes in before I was dealing with questions related to religion. Inappropriate Conversations number four was Rising from the Dead, the three films about Jesus worth seeing, and I implied there were only three. Number five, the least of these, and why Danzig's song Godless absolutely rocks. The least of these is a concept I've talked about here. That's the central notion in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus was urging us that he wasn't going to look the other way if we ourselves looked the other way at people who are starving, who are in prison, 
who are hospitalized or who are having catastrophic health circumstances because they can't afford to be in the hospital. Inappropriate conversations number 10, a handful of hair. Happy Mother's Day. Presumably a Mother's Day topic, but there was there was a great deal of uh, religious orientation to that show. In Inappropriate Conversations 12, I talked about the Holy Spirit and the concept of Pentecost. Uh, the partner show for Inappropriate Conversations 20, chapter and verse, was number 21, Permanent Things I Believe. So if I spend number 20 decrying things that a lot of people in the religious right believe that I don't, I spent 21 kind of sharing a little bit more on the positive side of things, what I do. It's not a list as clean and neat as the one I just shared from thirdway.com, but there's a lot of common themes there. Number 29 and number 30, I looked at prayer in school. Number 39 was called Privacy and Intimate Relationships, but it actually was the text of a sermonette, a message given in church on a Sunday. Number 48, Four Things I Know or Types of Knowledge. Definitely a religious perspective there, too. Number 49, RSVP, was also a message presented before a congregation in a church. Number 53, Secular Visions of Divinity. 54, John 3.17, where Jesus makes an exclusive claim without excluding anyone. Jesus makes exclusive claims, but he did so without excluding anyone. There's a lot of people on one side of the political spectrum who believe that gay Christian is an oxymoron. I don't believe that there's any evidence in Scripture that Jesus believes that gay Christian is an oxymoron. In fact, let me go back to the list again and kind of drop one of these other references about Jesus stepping in to deal with people who are outcasts. Number seven, Jesus sowed compassion for all and helped all, the poor, the despised, the outcast, and he wants us to do the same. So clearly, that's kind of Jesus' answer to that question. Number 68, I looked uh, back at 9-11 from 10 years on. I think I called it after the attacks. 69, uh, jokingly, I named it 69 reasons why we shouldn't trust our pure view of the Puritans. I did deal with Puritanism. I don't think I, don't think I had 69 reasons, though. Uh, number 74, adoption as heroism. 79 and 80, my own personal witness and testimony can be found in those episodes, along with inappropriate conversations, number 90. And number 81, me and a couple of friends actually shared an entire book of the Bible for Valentine's Day. And I wonder if most people can guess which book that was. Number 82, pandering from a political pulpit, a topic from inappropriate conversations, not unlike the one I'm talking about here. 83, being a tree for World Storytelling Day, another example of witnessing. 85, why I love to worship, whether in a church or not. 86, the heart of the matter, or your shimmering self, Another message given before a congregation. 97. Any one of us is not all of us. So we talk about Jesus picking up your cross and him saying, Hey, if any one of you wants to follow me, he or she should pick up his cross and follow me. That episode discusses the idea that this this notion of any one of us and the clear direction to pick up our cross means that you can't be saved because you're aligned with the right political party. We're not going to be a Christian nation where God is dealing just with the government or the president on behalf of all of us. That Jesus came to change everything, including this notion of nation, national worship, so to speak. Number 106, the violence of denial. Uh, this was dealing with whether gay Christian is a concept, among other things. Number 108, I called it, well, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> 
depending on how you define world, looking at the book of Revelations and um, other apocalyptic visions in Scripture. And in number 114, I offered some really hard words to Christians who were uh, seemingly comfortable with the ends versus the means approach of telling the right lie to get what you want. Uh, Father of lies is what I called it, and my idea was whether Christians should give up lying for Lent. We've got a lot of people who are kind of holding their nose and looking the other way. And a lot of, well, let's call them conservative people in government, because that's the truth of the matter, who are telling a heck of a lot of lies in Jesus' name. These are the ones that I've shared so far on Walk the Earth. So if you go to the Walk the Earth Facebook page and scroll for months and months and months, I've shared some of those SoundCloud clips there as well, because it was my way of saying, hey, Inappropriate Conversations had these shows, many of them before Walk the Earth existed, but I've shared the ones that I thought were relevant on social media, whether that be Twitter or Facebook. But to me, SoundCloud is part of social media. Hopefully SoundCloud will survive and persist for me to continue to put these hints up. I will also, just by number, say that uh, other ones that are posted onto SoundCloud... I haven't yet shared them on the Walk the Earth Facebook page because I, tr- I prefer to do this over time. Inappropriate Conversations episodes 117, 118, 129, 131, 133, 136. You can see that this is an ongoing thing. It's not unusual for Inappropriate Conversations every few shows to have something that is, if not religiously focused, at least religiously relevant. The most recent were a two-part dealing with spiritual retreats, episodes 139 and 140. So there is a great deal of, uh, I've been on the record, let's put it that way. There's a fairly good trail of previous podcast conversations dealing with examples like this, where I really feel like the answer, and if I want to get dire about it, it might be the only answer, but I think it is an answer to Dan Carlin's question of, how do we bridge the divide? How do we deal with with the problems facing us if the number one problem is that a couple of groups of Americans just absolutely hate each other, despise each other, would walk on the other side of the road and ignore the needs of an individual if if cast if the if the parable of the Good Samaritan was being told again today by Jesus, it would be a Republican who was beat up by robbers and liberal Americans walking past on the other side of the road. Or, you know, a liberal American beaten up by robbers and conservative Americans walking past on the other side of the road. we got to take what Jesus had to say seriously enough to look to one side, the right side of the political spectrum, and say, hey, if you want to claim to be Christian, great. Let's bring all of this stuff right back to what Jesus said to do and eliminate all the noise about um, tradition or American mythology that says, oh, no, no, rugged individualism. Jesus did not believe in rugged individualism. Going back to thirdway.com for key teachings, Jesus believed in things like you need to repent, you need to follow me, you need to take up your cross. This is not rugged individualism. And when we try to blend that piece of arguably false American mythology in with Christianity, it doesn't work. And I believe that there is a way for people on the left side of the political spectrum to call that out, but to do so in ironically a biblical way, to call it out gently and with respect for the, the mentality and the needs of the other person, not a gotcha, not calling someone names, not using proof text to show that someone's a hypocrite and therefore 
none of their faith can be trusted. Someone on the left side of the political spectrum would be much better respecting the faith of the individual on the right side of the political spectrum, but holding them accountable to that faith. I grant you everything. That what you believe is true, that the Bible is true, the New Testament is true. This list of 20 things that Jesus taught are all true. Let's start living them. I will put aside any doubts that I have about theism and pretend to do it Jesus' way, maybe not because of Jesus, but because kind of agree with the teaching. And maybe on the right side of the political spectrum, those individuals should say, hey, maybe I'm going to do this not because I'm on board with the teaching. I would much rather have a 15% tax break, put that money in my own bank account. But because i got to be true to myself, true to my word. If I'm going to call myself a Christian, that makes me a Christ follower. And if I'm going to be a Christ follower, I need to do it Jesus' way. And if I'm going to do it Jesus' way, there's a whole lot of people I need to care a lot more about than I'm caring about right now. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Once again, this list. Number 15, Jesus preaches, love your enemies, do not hate, be reconciled. If we can't find a better way to love our enemies than the problems that Dan Carlin and others have pointed out, probably have to stop calling ourselves Christians. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Lord, I've got a sense that I've gone on and on and on. I pray that I haven't been just repeating myself over and over again. I also pray that the people that I interact with online, many of whom I like, aren't right when they tell me I'm just beating my head up against a wall, that nothing will ever change. Jesus, one of the things I believe more than anything else is that you can make those changes. You are King of Kings. You are Lord of Lords. And if anything is possible, it is possible for you. So Lord, work in the lives of those people. Even though they may claim you're not real, you never were, you don't exist. To help them find their way through the wisdom of your teaching as a starting point. And Lord, let's have some road to Damascus experiences for as many Christian leaders as necessary. So they can hear your voice and take more seriously your words. That it won't be just style anymore. The substance of what you ask of us becomes real to all of us, in a way that maybe it isn't right now in our society. Because, Jesus, I don't believe we could treat each other the way we treat each other now, if our faith was indeed alive. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
music by Kevin McLeod. Next on Walk the Earth, whether missionary work is just a friendly front for cultural imperialism. Thanks for listening. <laughs>